can you say with with the same sort of passion and intensity that John Piper does that the Bible is more to you than just a dry, lifeless picture that hangs on the wall or sits on some counter or coffee table somewhere in your house, but instead that the Bible is a window that transports you into the real world, like he said, the eternal world, the everlasting world. That's what we hope will happen over the course of 2017. Unfortunately, I've spent you know, the last 10 years of, of my life, as I've done ministry, uh, instructing people to read the Bible. Oh, you should read the Bible. You place your faith in Jesus, read the Bible. You're struggling in your relationship with the Lord, read the Bible. But it's a little bit uh, of a disservice to people. It would be like, picture the following kind of scenario. You're in you know, you find yourself in some sort of like TV miniseries type world where uh, humanity is on the brink of extinction and you're one of the few people left and you're in New York City and there are not people anywhere. There's no one to be found. Public transportation is no longer running. You can't speak with anyone because you're the only person there, but you've got these vague instructions that in Times Square is the thing that's going to save everyone's life, yours included. And you've got 90 minutes to make it there, or else that thing disappears. And you're looking around, and it's just, you know, concrete jungle. It's asphalt and sidewalk and steel everywhere. And you have no idea where Times Square is, but apparently it's really important that you figure out how to get there. And bouncing around in your head are the voices of people that you've heard talk over the years about how much they love New York City and it's this awesome place and you're thinking to yourself, this is terrible. If I make it out of this experience alive, I don't ever want to come back. Instead, maybe I'll just listen to other people talk about how much they love it, but I don't ever need to come here again. That's what happens when I, I or we as Christians tell people, read the Bible. totally lost, wandering around in the middle of that, thinking to themselves, if I make it out of here alive, I'll never come back. I'll just listen to somebody else talk about it. All it would require in New York City is a map, a zoomed out picture that would show here's where you are and here's where Times Square is. Maybe without the map, there are a few people in this room who are like gritty enough or savvy enough to just figure it out, or maybe you'd just get lucky and walk in the right direction and end up in Times Square and everything would be okay. But I think for the most part, we'd wander around a little bit aimlessly, get frustrated, and just quit and say, I'll just take whatever comes to me. Whatever, whatever fate I'm about to get and the rest of humanity, I'll just deal with it because this is confusing and frustrating. And that's what I've, I feel like I've done to people when I've just said, read the Bible, and then I offer them no help, no one to walk alongside them, no explanation of what they're reading, no zoomed out map to help them see this is where you are and this is where you're headed. Instead, I've said, hey, you should read the Bible. There's life in there. 
Maybe you'll get lucky and stumble upon it. And so people, you know, maybe you wake up one morning and you say, you know what, I am. I'm going to try. I am going to go ahead and try to read the Bible. And you just flip your way open. Second Chronicles chapter 2. I guess that's where I'm starting. Okay. Now I have sent a skilled man who has understanding. And you're like, what? In the, I don't know what this means. I'll try again. Maybe I'll start somewhere else. And it's just total confusion. Eventually you say, I'm done. I give up. Our hope over the next year in 2017 is to help provide a map for people. Maybe you're here this morning and you've not ever really interacted with Scripture before. Maybe you've tried and you found yourself frustrated. Our hope is to provide some tools that make it a little bit easier, a little bit more accessible for you. In fact, not some tools that make it a little more accessible. We want to provide a tool that makes it so that you set yourself up for a lifetime of interacting with Scripture. That is our desire. It's possible that you're here this morning and you've been reading the Bible for years, and that is wonderful. We encourage you to still jump in alongside us and see you know, what it is that you learn about the Lord in the midst of what we're going to be doing over the course of this year. But we understand that the reality is that the vast majority of people in America, even within the American church, don't regularly read their Bible. Barna, at the end of 2014, released the results of a large study that said the Bible is, in fact, still the most purchased book in the world. In America, 88% of homes contain a Bible. In fact, the average in America is that every home contains 4.7 Bibles. So like four complete Bibles and then one Bible that stops at Acts or something. (laughs) The average home contains 4.7 Bibles in America. And yet, only 19% of people say that they ever read that Bible. So in 81% of the homes that have 4.7 Bibles inside of them, they just sit and collect dust. Of the 19% of people in America that actually read and interact with Scripture, less than half of those say that they spend any amount of time trying to figure out what Scripture says, what it means, or how it actually applies to their life. So if 19% of the American population is reading the Bible, then somewhere around 9.5% are actually trying to figure out why that matters, while the other 9.5% are just saying, well, I read it, so I guess by diffusion I'm just going to pick up what that means. We want to give a map. We want to provide a way for this congregation to understand what it is that you're reading. As we jump into that, we want to start in Psalm 119. And there's a very specific reason why we we chose to begin there. Over the course of this morning, in order to set up this year, 2017, the Bible Initiative, we need to do three things. And it might feel a little bit disjointed, but I hope it doesn't. The three things that we need to do are, we want to talk about a heart for Scripture, a heart for the Word of God. We want to talk about the big picture of the Bible and give you some tools to kind of orient yourself within the story of Scripture. And then the last thing we want to do is give some practical tools for engaging with Scripture over the course of the next year. And so we're going to start in Psalm 119. And we spent a lot of time 
talking as a staff, where would we begin uh, this year? We knew we wanted to walk through the main storyline of the Bible, but did we just want to jump into Genesis chapter 1 right away, or did we need something before that? And we ended up choosing Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, no matter how you go about figuring that. It's got the most words, it has the most verses, it has the most letters, it will take you the longest amount of time to read it. It is the longest chunk uh, a longest chapter of scripture in all of the Bible. And what it is, is a poem. It's a poem about a love for the Bible, about a love for scripture. It's actually an acrostic. Um, there are 22 stanzas in this poem, and each one corresponds to a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, when you look at Psalm 119 in your Bible, you'll see it split out that way. Each of those 22 stanzas has eight verses. And if we were actually reading it in Hebrew, you would see that every verse in any given stanza starts with that letter of the alphabet. We lose that in our English translations, which is a shame because it would be pretty beautiful to actually read it and see that come out. There are 176 verses in Psalm 119, and 196 of them make some sort of reference to the Word of God, to Scripture. As you read that over the course of this week, you'll see that the psalmist uses eight different words to talk about Scripture. You'll see the word law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances or judgments, depending on how your Bible translates that, promises, and you'll see the word word to describe uh, Scripture. Here's what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist is proclaiming a love for the Word of God. We're not going to read the whole thing uh, here this morning. You'll get to do that over the course of the next week if you jump in with us. Instead, what I want to do is I want to read you a few little excerpts, if you will, of just how the psalmist feels about God's words. In verse 14, he says, "...in the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches." Verse 18, he says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. Verse 25, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Verse 36, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Verse 72, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold or silver pieces. Verse 81, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Verses 92 and 93. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. And then verse 167, which is a pretty good summary of the entire psalm. My soul keeps your testimonies for I love them exceedingly. You may be sitting there in your seat thinking to yourself, I don't ever think any of those things 
about the Bible. When my alarm clock goes up in the morning, I don't hit that and think to myself, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. You think to yourself, give me nine more minutes on the snooze button. I'll try to squeeze in the word later. Why we're beginning in Psalm 119 is because we want to start with the end in mind. Our prayer as a staff is that we would get to January 1st, 2018, and this heart that the psalmist conveys in Psalm 119 would be true of us as a church. That we would be able to say truly and passionately that the law of the Lord's mouth is worth more to us than thousands of gold or silver pieces that we would be able to say, Lord, give me life according to your word. But that requires something. You see, Psalm 119 isn't just a poem about a love for the Bible. Psalm 119 is a poem about a love for God. As you read through Psalm 119 over the course of this week and you kind of allow the Lord to attune your heart to Scripture, notice how many times the psalmist says you or your. He's talking to the Lord. He understands that the reason he loves Scripture so much is because that's where he goes to find God. That's where he goes to interact with the Lord. There's nowhere else that he can do that. And so we're starting with the end in mind because we certainly want as a congregation to arrive at the end of the year, to arrive at the beginning of 2018 and say that the law of the Lord is worth more to us than thousands of gold or silver pieces. But really what we want to do is arrive in 2018 and say, I love the Lord more than thousands of gold or silver pieces. A love for the Bible flows from a love for God. Those two things cannot be separated. You can't have one without the other. If you don't love God... There aren't very many reasons to love Scripture. It would be offensive. It would feel binding, like chains or shackles. Some of the commandments wouldn't make sense. They would feel restrictive. But at the same time, if you love God, then Scripture isn't offensive. It's life-giving. It's not restrictive. It's a source of freedom. It's a place where you find joy where you interact with the love of the Lord. You can't have one without the other. A love for Scripture flows out of a love for the Lord. A lifetime of reading, studying, and memorizing, and praying, and applying the Bible stems from a heart that longs for the Lord. When we were in the process of putting together um, this Bible initiative Over the course of 2016, while we were preparing for it, we went through various working titles of what were we going to call this thing and what all was it going to entail and how are we going to do it. And at one point, we were kind of referring to it as a year in the Bible. And at some point, Jim uh, stopped us. I'm glad he did. And he said, hold on. We're not trying to do like one year in the Bible. And then people are like, oh, well, yeah, I did that for a year. Check. And now I'll move on to some other things. We're trying to set people up for a lifetime in the Bible. We're trying to set people up on a trajectory where they say, you know what, I'm going to spend the rest of my life running to Scripture. 
So like John Piper said in the video, we would say, am I going to read my Bible today? Yeah, where else am I going to go? What else am I going to do? Our prayer is that over the course of this year, we would all grow in our love for the Lord. And that would lead us to a greater appreciation of Scripture. It would set us on a trajectory of interacting with the Bible endlessly for the rest of our lives. But I think that we need the proper kind of large mindset understanding of what Scripture is. We need to understand the, the grand picture of what's happening in Scripture so that we can get down on the street level and actually appreciate the buildings and the concrete, if you will. We need a map. We need a really zoomed out map. And so this morning, I want to give you a one-sentence summary of what the Bible is. The Bible is the story of God's redemptive work among humanity. From Genesis 1-1 to the final amen at the end of Revelation, the Bible is the story of God redeeming humanity through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Begins in Genesis 1, ends at the end of Revelation. And everything in the middle is pointing to or flowing from the reality of Jesus Christ. So what I want to give you this morning are three ways to orient yourself in Scripture. And you can latch on to one of these that makes the most sense to you or is the most uh, usable for you, or you can latch on to all three of them or none of them. You're not going to hurt my feelings. So um, the first is this chart I've put up before. That chart, uh, if you take the words off of it, and it's available online. I know the, the font is small when we get it up there. Um, so you can go and see it online. But that chart is how you uh, chart a story. That there's an introduction, and in the Bible, that's Genesis 1 and 2. And the introduction sets up the characters and how things are supposed to be and, and everything in a good state. And then there's the introduction of a problem. And in the Bible, that's in Genesis chapter 3, and the problem is sin. And everything from the introduction of that problem to the climax is what is called rising action. In your Bible, that's all of the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 4 through Malachi. That there's this building suspense that the problem's got to have a solution. And then there's a climax. And in the Bible, that's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Jesus is the climax of the story of the Bible. And then after that, there's some falling action. So what do we do in light of our climax, our solution? And then there's a resolution there at the end, and that's the book of Revelation. That's one way to think about it. You can find that chart um, online with bigger words, and you'll be able to read it a little bit easier. There's a second way that you can understand the big picture of the Bible, and that's through five Christ-centered movements, if you will. The first is anticipation. Everything in the Old Testament anticipates Christ. It's as if you start reading in Genesis chapter 1 and you read all the way through Malachi and the constant refrain, if you were to sit down and read it in one setting, is that someone is coming to make right what is wrong. Someone's coming. Someone's coming. All the prophets say, someone's coming. As soon as the fall happens, God tells Adam and Eve, someone is coming. And all of the Old Testament points us to that. It's an anticipation of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, are the manifestation of Jesus. If all of the Old Testament says someone's coming, someone's coming, someone's coming, you arrive at the Gospels and it's like they're screaming, he's here. He has arrived. It's the manifestation 
of the Savior. After that, the book of Acts is the proclamation of that. The disciples go and they just want to tell everyone all about him. And so they take the news of the gospel to the known world at the time. And they're sharing about who Jesus is. They're proclaiming this Savior that has arrived. The epistles, uh, everything from Romans to Jude, is an explanation. What do we do with the fact that Jesus has arrived? Like, how does that impact the way we live? How do we respond to that? There's an explanation. And then finally, there's a consummation or an end in the book of Revelation. So that's a second way you can think about the story of the Bible. You could open up to any point in Scripture and say, okay, really big picture, 30,000-foot view. Where am I? Well, I'm reading in the book of Jeremiah. That's Old Testament anticipation. This book is anticipating the fact that Jesus is coming. Anticipation, manifestation, proclamation, explanation, consummation. Here's one more way. These have gone from complex to simple. Uh, This is, you can just think of this thing in four pieces. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there's a problem stated. The problem is sin. In Genesis 4, through the end of the Old Testament, there are these promises made. God says, I'm going to take care of the problem of sin. And then from Matthew to Jude, all of those promises are kept, and they're kept in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You hear about his life, you hear about his death and his resurrection, you hear about his ascension into heaven, and you hear about what it looks like to live in response to him. And then at the very end, in the book of Revelation, there's a perfect ending. You can open up anywhere in Scripture and kind of orient yourself in the big picture. And until you understand the big picture... I'm not sure we ever arrive at a place where we love Scripture like the psalmist talks about. How is it possible to read something like Leviticus and say to myself, these words are more valuable to me than 10,000 pieces of gold and silver, if you don't understand that those are telling you something about Jesus who's coming to save you? How is it that you could open up to something like one of the prophets that can be kind of hard to understand and they're using some difficult language and you could say to yourself, I love this. If you don't understand that that prophet is talking about a Messiah who's going to come and save humanity. How could you open up to the epistles that give you all of these instructions about how you're supposed to live and relate to other people and say, you know what? I love it when someone tells me what to do. Unless you understand that All of those commands flow out of a relationship from the man who died to save you. Until you understand the big picture of Scripture, that from beginning to end, it's about God's redemptive work through the person of Jesus Christ for all of humanity, I think it's hard to develop the kind of heart we see the psalmist have. But that's the kind of heart we want. And so we need to see the big picture. And we need to relate to Scripture in terms of the big picture. I want to give you some practical thoughts now. Okay, how are we going to do this? Because a year is a long time. It's one thing to say, I want to read Scripture more this year. And maybe you've never read Scripture before. And so if you read a little bit of Scripture the first 10 days of January, well, that would be more resolution complete, right? It'd be another thing to say, I want to read Scripture for a month, and I'm going to find a reading plan that helps me for a month. And that would be a great thing. But we're asking you to do this with us for a year, And so what are some practical tips to kind of play the long game here? Rome wasn't built in a day, right? This is going to take us some time to walk through the story of the Bible. And so here are six practical thoughts. The first one is pray. Pray. 
Pray that the Lord would give you a heart that longs to read the word. Pray that the Lord would sustain that desire within you. Pray that he would give you insight and understanding into what it is that you're reading. Pray for patience, that when you don't understand something, that wouldn't be the thing that derails you entirely. Pray. We want this year to be something that leads us into a deeper love for the Lord and into a deeper love for his word. That's going to require the work of the Holy Spirit in all of our hearts, which requires us to pray. First and foremost, pray. The second is this, be disciplined. If part of what you're trying to do in the new year is eat better, and so you're getting on a diet, you're going to arrive like midweek this week, and you're going to see a cheeseburger. You're going to have to make a decision about the cheeseburger or the resolution to eat better. And the way that you do that is through discipline. Okay, I have made a predetermined decision that I'm going to eat well. And even though I feel differently right now, the predetermined predetermined decision is the thing that's going to win out. If you've never read scripture before, if you've never regularly interacted with the Bible, you're going to wake up one day, you're going to get to the evening one night, and just not feel like it. In that moment, be disciplined. Kind of be gritty. It takes a while to develop a habit. It takes a while for heart change to happen. And so there may be some days all throughout the course of the year where you've got to tell yourself, you know what, I'm just going to do it for the sake of doing it. And your heart will change over time and the habit will form over time and you'll arrive at a place somewhere along the way, prayerfully and hopefully, where you do long to read scripture. But there will be moments where it's an act of discipline. So be gritty and be disciplined and just kind of hunker down and stick with it. Tip number three, extend grace. And by that, I mean extend grace to yourself. If you miss a day, it's okay. If you miss a whole week, it's okay. If you arrive at a point where you say to yourself, I just don't understand what I'm reading, it's okay. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be perfect in checking off the days on the reading plan over the course of the year. Give yourself a little bit of grace, but also be disciplined. Allow those two things to work together. If you skip a day, just jump back in with us. If you miss an entire week, it's okay. You can either try to catch up for that week, or we're going to be teaching about it on Sunday mornings and The podcast will be available, and you can just jump ahead and rejoin us. But give yourself a little bit of grace. Number four is this. Remember relationship. Reading your Bible isn't going to save you, but it could lead you to the one who can. If you're here this morning, you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and you're considering joining with us in this process and examining who Jesus is and why you need to be saved and what he did to do that, You're reading for relationship. I want to encourage you to do that. That's what the Bible reveals to us, that there's a God who is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, and yet you can have a relationship with him. So read for that relationship. If you've already placed your faith in Jesus, then you read from relationship. When I was uh, in like middle school, I got my first girlfriend. Her Her name was Lindsay. And we would pass notes back and forth between classes. Kids, uh, like we wrote those, we didn't text them. It's like a involved a pen and a piece of paper. 
And so we would write these notes during class, and then we would fold them up into these really cute shapes, and we would pass them to each other in the hallway. Well, at some point, we got tired of trying to like save and store all of the little pieces of paper, and so we decided, you know what we'll do? We'll just get a notebook. So we got a spiral notebook with a few hundred sheets of paper in it, and we would just pass the notebook back and forth. And every once in a while, I would find myself sitting in a class that was maybe particularly boring, and I would be weeks back in the notes we had written each other, reading the same stuff, you know, every day. I'm bored in class. I miss you. You know, whatever. I haven't seen you in 40 minutes. Um, And so I would find myself way back in the notes, reading those, not because what was in there was like so meaningful to me, but because there was a relationship. And I was just reading from the relationship. The beauty of scripture is that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you read from a relationship. He has saved you and told you all about it. And he wants to reveal himself to you. The Lord wants to reveal himself to you over and over and over again. And you read from that relationship. But not only do you read from the relationship, but what he wants to say is actually really important. It's not, I haven't seen you in 40 minutes. (laughs) He actually wants to speak to you. Read Read either for or from relationship. The fourth one is this. Don't go alone. Don't think to yourself, you know what, I'm going to strike out on this deal and I'm going to do it as a totally solitary endeavor. That's not setting yourself up for success, nor do I think is that how the Bible was intended to be read. The accountability alone is worth doing this with a group, with your family, with your small group, doing it with us as a church. But more so than that, when we read Scripture together, we benefit from the fact that different people see things differently. They pick up different things in Scripture. They might have the answer to the question that you have. They may see something or or read something that you totally missed that opens your eyes to something new about who God is or what Jesus has done or whatever the case might be. Do that in community. I want to give a a particular uh, challenge to husbands and fathers in the room. Do this with your family. I pray that we're a church that's made up of men who love the Lord unashamedly, who pursue Him passionately, and who seek Him in His Word diligently. And that we share that with the world around us, but most importantly, we share that with our families. You may engage with the family devotional pieces and like the activities that are inside your Bible initiative book. And let me just tell you right off the start, dads, moms, if you're doing the little activities, there are going to be days where that is a total train wreck. It's supposed to be a skit about Moses and there's a prop that's supposed to be a staff and that staff has become a lightsaber and one kid's asleep and one has left the room and the other is swinging the fake lightsaber that was supposed to be Moses' staff all around. And you're going to think to yourself, we're not going any further than this activity. That is okay. Melody talks a lot about her dad's attempts to lead them through devotionals and through scripture when she was a child. And there were five children in their family. And she said they were super disrespectful, sometimes intentionally. They didn't uh, remember really anything that happened during those times. But by the time Melody got to high school, she was certain of three things. Her dad loved the Lord, he loved the word, and he wanted the same for them. 
Dads, there's nothing better you could give to your child and to your wife and to the generations that come after you than a picture of the fact that you love the Lord. You love pursuing him in scripture and you want the same for your family. Don't don't go through this this year alone. If you're a father or a husband, go through it with your family. Persevere through the challenges. Understand that some days are going to be great and some days are going to be a total train wreck and that is okay. But don't do it alone. Do this in community. Do it with your small group. If you're not in a small group, jump into one of those Bible initiative groups and walk through scripture alongside people. If you're totally unwilling to do either of those things, find someone here in the church and say, you know what, could we just meet together every once in a while and spend some time talking about what it is that we're reading because I want to understand this. Don't go alone. The last piece is this. Look for Jesus. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The Gospels tell us of Jesus' life. The rest of the New Testament tells us how to live in response to that. Revelation tells us that he's coming again. Jesus isn't hiding in the pages of Scripture. He's literally screaming off of them, all of them, from beginning to the end. He's present in all of Scripture. And so look for him. Unfortunately, what we do sometimes is, is we come to Scripture and we say, I'm coming to Scripture and looking for me. I want to come to Scripture and say, how does this comfort me? How does this make me feel better? How does this instruct me? How does this refresh me? And all the while, Scripture is sitting there, and it's the words of the Lord saying, Jesus comforts you. Jesus instructs you. Jesus refreshes you. Jesus gives you life. And He is all through there, but you've got to go to Scripture looking for Him and not for yourself. You've got to show up to Scripture looking for the Savior all throughout it. When we start in Psalm 119, look for Jesus. I want to to just give you a quick demonstration or illustration of that. One of the things you'll see as we go through the Bible is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is everything that the law in the Old Testament was pointing to. He is God's testimony in the world, in the universe. He is the Word made flesh. He fulfilled perfectly all of the commandments in the Old Testament. And so what I've been doing over the course of the last week as I've read through Psalm 119 each day is that I've been substituting Jesus' name into the places in Psalm 119 where those words appear. The law, commandments, your word. And it has absolutely blown open Psalm 119 for me. Listen to some of these things. Jesus is better to me than thousands of gold or silver pieces. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to Jesus. I will never forget Jesus, for by him you have given me life. I rejoice in Jesus like one who finds great Spoil. If, you're, or if Jesus had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Those are incredible prayers. And Jesus is all throughout Scripture in that sort of way. 
and a heart that longs for the Lord and that longs for his word is going to stem from finding Christ, allowing him to speak throughout all of scripture, that we would arrive on January 1st, 2018, and like the chorus to this song says, we would understand better than we ever have before, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And that no matter where we turn in scripture, that's what we see. We read Genesis and we see all I have is Jesus. We read one of the prophets and we say, all I have is Jesus. We read the gospels, all I have is Jesus. And that that would lead us to a place where our soul just continually is screaming out of us, hallelujah. That's what we want in 2017. It's not just a lot of people who read their Bible more. It's a lot of people who worship the Lord more, who see Jesus more, whose hearts proclaim hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Let's stand up and worship together as we close this morning.